the man had relations with his wife, Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. Next, she bore his brother Abel, and Abel became a keeper of flocks, and Cain a tiller of the soil. Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. The story of Cain and Abel, famous for its depiction of fraternal strife and the first instance of murder, also portrays an evolution of human culture which occurred several thousand years ago. During the Mesolithic, the availability of resources traditionally exploited by early modern humans changed, and changed utterly. The big game disappeared forever, and with them a way of life that had been reliable for tens of thousands of years. Lands once occupied and utilized were submerged beneath by rising sea levels. Meanwhile, across Eurasia, retreating glaciers were revealing new lands. In response, Mesolithic man did a few things that Paleolithic man had never bothered to try, probably because he had not needed to. These actions, these new approaches to the use of natural resources and the production of increasingly sophisticated tools, led our ancestors into a new age into the Neolithic. These new developments in the various cultures of Mesolithic humans, developments which brought virtually the whole world into the Neolithic over the course of a few thousand years, did not occur separately and distinctly from one another though they may seem unrelated at first glance. Neolithic communities possessed a cluster of techniques, technologies, and practices that modern anthropology calls the Neolithic package. But it is impossible to extract any one of these aspects of Neolithic culture, these innovations, and determine exactly when and where they were invented. Nevertheless, let us begin with the most well-known innovation of the period. Let us begin with agriculture. People often speak of two developments of this time as if they were completely distinct from one another, agriculture and animal domestication, just as they are presented and even opposed in the subtext of the story of Cain and Abel. But really, these two innovations are just the same approach to two different resources in the Neolithic landscape. Agriculture is just the domestication of plants. Really, it would be possible to label this turning point in the evolution of human cultures with just one term, but it has become customary to refer separately to both agriculture and domestication, so I will continue that tradition. So Neolithic humans looked around them at the resources of their world, resources which were not all that different from those of their Paleolithic ancestors for 100,000 years, minus the big game, and they looked at these resources in a new way. They thought of conserving them, of preserving them. For 100,000 years or more, Paleolithic humans had lived thoughtlessly and doubtlessly led pleasant lives of indiscriminate consumption. They roved over Eurasia, chasing big game and foraging for fresh fruit and nuts. It is possible that these early modern humans sometimes resorted to eating cereals such as wheat, but preparation of this food for consumption, turning the ripe grains into bread, would have required a great deal of work compared to the ease with which other foods could be eaten, so it seems unlikely. There is no solid evidence for the consumption of grain, until the Mesolithic period. 
As the Paleolithic gave way to the Mesolithic, the world around our ancestors changed. The big game were gone, and an ancient way of life disappeared forever. Furthermore, the world was becoming more crowded. Archaeologists suggest that all of Europe may have held just a few thousand humans at a time, especially during glacial maximums. As the Mesolithic progressed and the world warmed, the human population grew. So there was less food on the move and more people to feed. At some point, and we will never be able to determine exactly when, there's a reason that we call it prehistory, our ancestors turned to other food sources, less satisfying food sources, but they were more available. Specifically, in the Near East, they turned to wheat and barley, cereals that were edible for humans but difficult to prepare. The ears of grain from wild wheat plants only became really edible just before falling off the stalk. A new approach was required to turn this plant and others into a reliable and plentiful food source. I said before that we are not able to determine the exact specifics of when and where cultivation first began. Thanks, however, to recent discoveries in the Levant, that eastern coastal area of the Mediterranean in and around Israel, Lebanon, and Syria, we now have a good candidate for that first innovator, the Natufian culture. But before I delve into this culture, we should all remember that there will always be another discovery just around the corner that will change the way that we look at our past and another earlier culture may be discovered that beat the Natufians in this imaginary race to the Neolithic. But for the meantime, let's look at the Natufians, not only because they are the best present candidate for the first place in the invention of agriculture, but their culture also ties into another key development in the Neolithic and in the history of the West, a development that we will discuss in a later podcast. Beginning in the late 1920s, in the hills west of the River Jordan, near the Wadi al-Natuf, Archaeological discoveries showed that early modern humans had cultivated crops, particularly wheat, in this area as long ago as 12,000 BC. Thus, the Natufians were beginning to acquire some of the Neolithic package, while the rest of the world was only just transitioning out of the Paleolithic and into the Mesolithic, another demonstration of the overlap that I mentioned in the podcast on the Mesolithic. Before going into the topic of the Natufians, it should be understood that they did not appear out of nowhere. This is not one of those mysteries of history that you see in YouTube videos and television documentaries. The Natufians clearly developed out of other cultures that existed along the Mediterranean, in the Levant, and along the shores of North Africa, and in the Sinai Peninsula. However, we will leave these details behind for those who have a deeper interest in prehistoric man. Let's continue with the Natufians and learn about their vital contribution to the development of civilization in the Near East. The Natufians are most interesting, not only because their culture begins to acquire Neolithic features when many of their neighbors are just exiting the Paleolithic, but also because in the archaeological record, they appear to become sedentary before they begin practicing agriculture. This allows researchers to dig deeper, both literally and figuratively, into how prehistoric cultures transitioned from hunting and gathering to agriculture. The Levant in that time period was not the arid desert that Israel or Palestine brings to the modern mind when mentioned. It was a much wetter climate, and in the region grew many native cereals and other edibles that would end up becoming staples of the Neolithic diet. Initially, the Natufians remained hunters, but supplemented their diet plentifully with the wild grains that grew in the area, such as barley. They even devised stone sickles to improve their efficiency at harvesting. This supports theories about the prehistoric transition into our agriculture, that early modern humans first began to practice a soft version of agriculture, taking actions to support the growth 
of wild foods that they preferred without actually sowing the seeds, but gradually moving on to that practice over the centuries. Perhaps they began to leave many plants intact instead of consuming their grains so that they might produce a healthy field of crops the next year. Or they could have cleared land of brush so that the grain might grow better the next year. All this kind of thinking probably would have been revolutionary for people transitioning out of a hunter-gatherer life. In this region, and other regions around the world in which the Neolithic Revolution began to occur, the first stage is typically the same. It is known as the pre-pottery Neolithic. This is the first stage when people begin to practice agriculture, typically transitioning into it slowly like the Natufians, nurturing wild crops without actually engaging in the sowing of seeds. The reference to pottery and its significance for anthropologists may catch some listeners by surprise. Pottery may seem like a mundane development, but its impact on ancient societies, especially with regard to food storage, was immense. With clay pots, food could be safely and efficiently stored and protected from vermin. The ability to store food for the long term made sedentary lifestyles truly viable. Furthermore, the development of pottery or ceramics is probably crucial to a society having sufficient confidence in their new sedentary or semi-sedentary lifestyle, because it should not be assumed that the journey to our modern technological society was inevitable. There is evidence that some ancient societies flirted with agriculture and sedentary lifestyles before returning to hunting and gathering. Perhaps pottery and other factors made it possible for those cultures that did continue down the road to the Neolithic Revolution. Another important feature in the development of pottery is the kiln used to bake the clay and create ceramic utensils and containers. This represents a big leap forward in the mastery of fire that would lead to such things as the blacksmith's furnace and make possible the Bronze Age thousands of years later. Obviously, there is also a strong relationship between the oven used to bake bread out of crushed grains and the pottery kiln. When you think about that, you begin to see simultaneously how linear and yet how complicated the set of developments was that led out of the Paleolithic and up to our present day. Sometime after our ancestors began domesticating plants, they turned to the domestication of animals. At least, that is what the present timeline tells us. No one can be really certain about the chain of events in this time period. What we do know, when it comes to the Near East anyway, is that wild sheep and goats were probably the first animals to be domesticated after the dog tens of thousands of years before. Again, the domestication of the dog is really a separate matter. The dog became man's companion and helper, rather than a cultivated source of nutrition and other things. Sheep and goats, however, could provide a steady supply of meat, milk, and wool. They were the first domesticated animals, as far as we can tell, in regions of modern Iran sometime around the year 9000 BC. Another interesting feature of animal domestication in this period is that it left a nomadic option open to hunter-gatherers. While animal domestication might bring to mind a farmer with crops in the field and cows in the barn, it also means pastoralism. The biblical stories of Abraham in the book of Genesis offer a good look at this ancient practice that has lasted into our present day in certain regions of the world. 
and the story of Cain and Abel clearly depicts the existence of these two separate modes of living, one of working in the fields and one of following the herds. Because you would not be able to manage a large herd of animals indefinitely in one location. They would eat all the edible vegetation eventually. So pastoralists might adopt some of the techniques of the Neolithic without totally giving up the nomadic freedom of their hunter-gatherer ancestors. It has been pointed out in books such as Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs, and Steel that not every animal is receptive to domestication. Early modern humans did not simply start domesticating random animals. Genetic science has shown that only certain animals have the right characteristics to undergo the process of domestication successfully. They must have a certain social aspect already present in their existence. See how the wild versions of the animals that we have domesticated today typically live in herds or packs, the dog, the horse, the cow, sheep, the pig. However, that characteristic alone does not ensure that an animal will be capable of, of domestication, and our ancestors could not have simply known by looking at an animal in the wild that it would be able to be domesticated. There must have been a great deal of trial and error over the centuries. As the Neolithic progressed in the Near East, a certain set of animals did become common among the various cultures that became established in the area. The sheep, the pig, the goat, and eventually what we know as cows or cattle would become domesticated, that is an awesome story to imagine. The ancestor of our modern cattle is the great Orak, a huge beast whose shoulders stood five to six feet high, considerably dwarfing the men who must have sought his capture and control. How this was accomplished, how many times and where, remains a mystery. Over time, the size of the Orak, and probably his temperament as well, was reduced through selective breeding to resemble the cow, with which most of us are probably familiar today. Interestingly, the wild orc remained in existence until the 17th century in Europe, when the last known specimen died in Poland. There is a certain settling down taking place at this time, and really all over the world, whenever the Neolithic stage is reached in a particular area. As mentioned before, though, not everyone accepts the Neolithic package so readily, and some cultures will even turn away from it. After all, prehistoric man was not dead set on achieving our modern society. There is a tendency in many people who first approach history to think in teleological terms. Teleology is a certain philosophical approach to any system of thought. A teleological view of history imagines that people already have future developments in mind. For instance, it is not uncommon to think that People adopted agriculture for the benefits that we now see in hindsight. Larger populations, more stable food supplies, more opportunity to care for the sick and the old, and so on. Some might even imagine that Neolithic people des desired to build cities and the architectural wonders that their descendants would eventually erect in Egypt and Mesopotamia. That would suggest that we are purposefully building the world of tomorrow. However, anyone who has ever watched an old video about how the world would look in 5, 10, 20, or 50 years can see how wrong all such suppositions are. In the 1980s, for example, no one really had any idea how the internet was going to transform the world over the next few decades, not even the people who were active in its creation. They just knew that it would be useful somehow. No one was thinking of social media or the iPhone or Bitcoin mining. The same should be understood for our Neolithic ancestors. They began to harvest wild grains because their previous food supply, and I'm particularly speaking of the big game, 
had been radically and forever changed. Once they began to alter their food sources, they began to improve their approaches to them. Really, this is probably what their ancestors did with the big game of the Paleolithic, gradually altering their techniques to make acquisition of food as easy as possible. Maybe, after millennia of slow improvements, they got so good at hunting that they wiped out their food supply without intending to. Fortunately, in the Neolithic, humans began to think in terms of preservation. Perhaps the loss of that former big-game hunting lifestyle still stung in some kind of racial memory, and they tried to make sure that their new food sources would not disappear. So the Neolithic happened out of necessity, not out of some drive to become civilized or more advanced. In fact, Neolithic humans are not really superior to their hunter-gatherer ancestors. Relying more on vegetable sources for food, they received less protein in their diet, so they typically did not grow as tall, nor would they have been as physically strong. Eating softer foods, full of lots of carbohydrates, over time, the dental health of Neolithic humans was compromised, and this is evident in comparisons of their skeletal remains with those of their Paleolithic ancestors. Living sedentarily in large groups with less exercise, they would have been prone to more illness. There is no doubt that the hunter-gatherers, the big-game hunters of the Paleolithic in particular, were physically superior specimens in comparison to Neolithic humans. No, Neolithic humans made the choices that they made out of necessity, not because they were on their way to becoming superior, smarter men and women. So why did they win, you might ask? Why did Neolithic humans prevail? After all, when we look around us, we live in the product of the agricultural world which Neolithic people created. The hunter-gatherers lost. Why? If they were so superior physically and so much more healthy and probably possessing a cunning intelligence in order to survive in the open wild, why have the hunter-gatherers largely disappeared? There are probably many answers to this question, and the, and the listener can enjoy speculating on them. One easy answer that many historians would agree on is the answer of numbers. While each Neolithic human may have been inferior when matched up against his hunter-gatherer counterpart, there were eventually just many more Neolithic humans. In the wild, on the run, a Paleolithic woman would have been able to care for a very limited number of children over the course of her lifetime, and she would not have survived certain difficulties in pregnancy that might have come along, which could have been cured with a little rest in combination with whatever medicine Neolithic villages possessed. So, over time, Neolithic humans would have simply outpopulated their fellow humans in the surrounding areas who remained in the hunter-gatherer lifestyle. Over time, too, they would have been able to dictate terms when it came to possession of resources in the countryside around their villages. Issues of property and possessions come into play here as well, and we can see the first class divisions probably erupting into human life, as opposed to a much more egalitarian way of life that would have been likely among hunter-gatherers. There are many other possible answers to this dilemma. Probably, it was a combination of factors which slowly led to Neolithic humans taking over the world several thousand years ago. And the answer does not have to involve dramatic clashes or battles either. Over time, Mesolithic humans, still clinging to their blend of hunter-gatherer lifestyle and soft agriculture, may not have had much choice in adopting the Neolithic package. Resources changed, populations grew, new needs had to be met, and the techniques and technologies of the Neolithic, whether they had to be devised on their own or simply adopted from neighbors, would have simply made sense.
As the Neolithic progresses, we get closer to actual history, to the first grand civilizations of the ancient Near East. However, there is much more to say about this critical time period in which so many facets of modern society have their origin. Consider, for example, my earlier comment about the concept of property, an idea probably not unknown to Paleolithic humans, who might have favored certain hunting grounds and protected them, but they would have not had the nearly sacred idea of rights to property that modern people had. And individuals probably would not have been distinguished from one another by their possessions back then. There will be further developments in technological advances during the Neolithic as well, advances whose details will probably always remain buried in the historical silence of the late Neolithic. There will also be great events, some natural and some caused by men, that will have great impacts on the development of human society. Finally, the first large settlements of humans, the proto-cities of the Near East, will appear out of the collection of villages that previously dotted the Neolithic map, and we will finally be ready to venture into recorded history when the cities of Sumer begin to rise along the rivers Tigris and Euphrates in the 4th millennium BC. In the following episodes, I will review the developments of metallurgy and other matters and their importance to the final transition out of the Stone Age and into the Bronze Age. Until then, thank you for listening to the Western Traditions Podcast.